Hello and welcome to the debut episode of Fall Classic Rewind, the stories behind the World Series. I'm really excited to get to uh, kick off this show, or to lead off, if we're going to use a baseball term. Um, we're of course going to be covering the 1969 World Series between the Mets and the Orioles. That's going to be the first series we cover in today's episode. We're going to later get into Game 1, really exciting matchup between Mike Cuellar and Tom Seaver. But before we get into that, I sort of want to recap the 1969 season. Kind of take a look to see where we are in terms of the state of baseball. What was the state of baseball in 1969? We're capping off a decade, one of the best decades of baseball you're ever going to see. Really what many would consider to be the golden era. You have just amazing players. Henry Aaron, Willie Mays. Koufax, Gibson, Marshall, Robinson, Mantle, Clemente, McCovey. I could, I could probably go on naming players for a while. I mean, there's this whole thing of, <laughs> I saw this joke once on Twitter, which was just guys could just sit around and name sports players. Like, hey, remember this guy? It's a, it's a thing. I am like, I, I felt very seen uh, <laughs> by that. Um, it's it, it almost seems like a very trivial thing we do, but I mean, I absolutely love it. I love just going back and digging through sports. Uh, it's amazing. And I mean, that's kind of the point of this show. But again, like looking at what was the state of baseball in 1969? I mean, the debt, I mean, we're capping off a decade here, uh, an important decade in U.S. history. But, you know, I'm going to mainly focus on baseball history. So there are a couple of things to mention about the 60s. I mean, of course, we have the stars, but it was really a decade of expansion. I mean, early on in the decade, we had the Mets and the Colt 45s, who became the Astros. We had the second iteration of the Senators because the original Senators, Calvin Griffith, moved them to Minneapolis, moved, moved them away to Minnesota. And then we also had California. We had the Angels, who were initially the Los Angeles Angels, and of course were named the California Angels for many years. But 1969 was when we got four more teams. So we've got the Royals and the Pilots. The Pilots eventually became the Brewers. And we had the Padres and the Expos. The Expos very much later would become the Nationals. So now we have four teams. And so this is going to be the first year with divisions. Up until this point, the top two teams in each league we're guaranteed a spot in the World Series. Not anymore. As it turns out, the top teams in the National League and the American League ended up meeting each other in the World Series, but this was the first time that we were going to have the playoffs. Actual postseason baseball for more than just two teams. We're going to have four teams reach the postseason. It was monumental. And it really kind of changed things. I mean, it it, it was it was a it was a difference. Um you know, that was monumental. Um, and we'll go in more as we talk about the Mets and the Orioles kind of. We'll talk about it in this episode, but it's going to be kind of throughout this series as we cover each as we cover each of the games, cover each of the players, you know, the guys who come up big in each game. We're going to talk about the story of the season and what happened. Um, but, you know, again, the main recap is that the Orioles – 
and the Mets meet in the World Series. But how did we get there? Well, part of that is, you know, a change, the big change too that happened in 1969 was they lowered the mound because 1968 was the year of the pitcher. Bob Gibson and Denny McLean both took home MVPs. Denny McLean won 30 games. Bob Gibson had a 112 ERA. And just offense had cratered. It was almost to an all-time low, something you almost hadn't seen since the dead ball era. And so there needed to be a, a bit of a change. Now, expansion plays into, I wouldn't call it necessarily an offensive explosion in 1969, but we went from around three, a little less than three and a half runs a game to a little over four runs a game. That's over a half run per game improvement and hitting was a lot better. You had a lot more guys hitting over 300. You had guys hitting over 40 home runs. I mean, you had Rico Petroselli of the Red Sox dropping 40 home runs almost out of nowhere. He wouldn't do that again in his career. Rico Petroselli had a very, a very, very nice career, mind you. But, uh, you know, then you also had Willie McCovey taking home MVP with an outstanding season. For the Giants and the Giants, I mean, if we were to go from divisions now and wildcard teams making it and all that stuff, they probably would have had a chance to make the postseason. Wasn't the case this year. Um, but really, when you look at it, when you look at the 1969 season, so sort of how did we get here with the Mets and the Orioles? They took different paths. The Orioles were dominant from the outset, and we're and we're gonna cover them kind of a lot in this episode. Um, we're going to cover two of their main players who come up big in this game one matchup. But the Orioles, I mean, they just did everything right. And with Earl Weaver at the helm, he had took over the previous season. Hank Bauer had led them to a World Series in 1966. They were a bit disappointing in 67 and 68, but so he took over in the midst of the 68 season and, you know, led them kind of on a fiery comeback that, you know, not, not enough to overtake the Red Sox, not, not quite nearly enough to take overtake the Red Sox in 68, but they were primed. They made the addition of Mike, Mike Cuellar. Um, they had Jim Palmer coming back from injury. Dave McNally was establishing himself as a star pitcher. Uh, they had a very excellent bullpen with Eddie Watt, Pete Richard, um, and a number of other guys. And then, of course, I mean, their lineup was outstanding. You got Frank Robinson in the cornerstone. Well, actually, what we'll talk about, you had Don Buford in left. He led off. Paul Blair in center, a guy who can go grab it. And then also this year, he hit 26 home runs, had one of his best seasons. You had Frank in right, of course. So you had the outfield. Um, what a tremendous outfield, one of the best outfields in baseball that could both hit and field. Book Powell at first had a, you know, had a near MVP season, won MVP the following year in 1970. Brooks Robinson at third. Davey Johnson at second, very solid, up-and-coming player. Mark Belanger at short, and then either Andy Etcheverin or uh, Ellie Hendricks behind the dish. Very one of the best combined catcher duos that you're going to see a right and left split. And that was really, and you know, you had Merv Rettman, Kurt Moten, um, 
couple of others, Chico Salmon, a couple other guys coming off the bench. But that, you know, that was the team. That was the team. And they excuse me. They were just excellent. I mean, the, they did everything right. One of the best hitting teams, the best pitching team, and by far the best defensive team. If you want to go into a bit of analytics, there's this thing sort of like fielding runs, you know, saved or like adjusted fielding runs, you know, zero, like, you know, zero being average, you didn't save or something. So most teams are around sort of average. The Mets actually were quite good. They were the second best team in the league at 53 runs saved across the year. The Orioles were over a hundred runs saved. That just shows you. And, and, and so they were twice as good as the next best team. There was no one else who was even close across the league. And that's also you take into account to the fact that they had outstanding pitching and they were one of the best hitting teams in the league. It's no surprise they won 109 games. You know, the, they ended up in the ALCS facing off against the Twins. The Twins won the, won the West. They were another team that had outstanding pitching. They had Jim Perry, Jim Cott, a couple of other guys, and their offense was outstanding. You had Harmon Killebrew at first, ended up winning MVP that year. You had Rod Carew, one of the best pure hitters you're ever going to see, and just an outstanding second baseman at the time and later became a first baseman. And actually, I'm mistaken – Harmon Kilbrew didn't play first. He, he's kind of more known as a first baseman. He ended up playing third for the most part that that year. Uh, you had Leo Sardinius uh, or, or Cardenas. Um, just a really good team um, who unfortunately was not able to make much of a difference. I mean, they played some tight games. They played some tight games against the, uh, against the Orioles in the ALCS. Jim Perry uh, pitched his butt off. The Orioles were able to eke out two extra inning wins and then absolutely crushed the Billy Martin-led um, uh, Twins. I mean, interesting enough, Billy Martin was very famous. Uh, he was a winner, but, man, he could not keep a job. Uh, that was the only year uh, that he ended up managing the Twins, despite leading them to 97 wins. Um, he and Calvin Griffith and you name it, anyone, they did not get along. Uh, and, uh, he was, uh, he was not brought back for the next year. The twins ended up doing quite well in 1970. Um, but (laughs) Billy Martin had to go find work elsewhere. Um, there were other teams. I mean, the Reds, the Red Sox were very solid, but really the, the Orioles were the best team in the American league. And frankly, they were the best team in baseball from start to finish. The Mets, on the other hand, they had a little bit of of a tougher road, they had the Cardinals uh, coming off of a World Series appearance. They were heavily favored. The Reds couldn't pitch, but they could hit. Cubs, the Cubs actually led the division for much of the year. And it wasn't until, you know, the very end of September, the Mets caught fire at the end of the year. They were, you know, led led by pitching. They had great pitching. Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Gary Gentry as a rookie was quite, was quite good. Don Card- Cardwell was was very good and they you know they had a good hitting outfield cleon jones and tom agee were uh we tom agee was a great leadoff hitter uh cleon jones was a good uh good three-hole hitter 
whether it was Art Shamsky or Ron Swoboda were a good uh, platoon out and right. And they got good enough production elsewhere. You know, uh, Gil Hodges, who was their manager, he had taken over. Gil Hodges was the new Senators manager for a lot of years. Had actually seen an improvement. I mean, they were, you know, obviously an expansion team and struggling, but was seeing improvement. Then he hopped onto the Mets and was immediately taking them to new heights. Um, the Mets, you know, obviously this was only their eighth year, had never had a winning season. And Gil Hodges comes in and pretty much is going to take them to the promised land, immediately turn them around as quite a fantastic team. And and so that was the thing is they kind of got there in a weird way because they had some great hitting performances and we'll get in and later as we get into the series, we're going to go over the guys who really came up big for them, but really kind of the story of their season was Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman. There's, very few better one-two one, two punches that you're going to see. And so they ended up facing the Braves, who led by Henry Aaron. They had Rico Cardi with a fantastic year. You know, and we'll get kind of more into those games in, in relation to how it played out and in, in, the, in the how you're going to see it play out into the series here. But, you know, the the Mets – they smacked the Braves around, even though Henry Aaron had had a home run in each game in the series. Those games didn't end up being close. It, surprisingly enough, the Mets hit something they really didn't do for much of the year. And even when they went on a torrid stretch to overtake the Cubs and, and spread themselves as a 100-win team, it was because they could pitch, they could field, and they just got enough hitting. I mean, we, we talk about if you know anything about baseball, it's all about timely hitting and sequencing. They were one of the more lucky teams, although they were a they were a below average offense when you're looking at runs per game, when you're looking at on base percentage, slugging, all of these things. They just did enough, and as we talk about and and we we'll sort of talk about, they they were an upstart team. They never felt like they were out of any game any series they were hungry you know they had had nearly the entire decade they were abysmal but now they were having success and so that's really the story of the season i mean i could go into the standings and all that and and we'll do we'll do that as we talk about but it's sort of at the end the end of the decade we're coming up between a team that was looking to establish a dynasty and a team, you know, that had already won a world series and was very clearly looking to establish themselves as, as the next dynasty in baseball. And so that's the Orioles. They were very clearly on top and the Mets who came out of nowhere. They, they I mean, they're kind of the, as I talked about in sort of the trailer for the show of, you know, filled with unsung heroes. They certainly had stars, but they were they were this team that was, huh, who are these guys? So um, I'm going to talk a little bit more, not about the Mets, but we're, we're going to talk a bit more about the Orioles and specifically two players who really come up big in this game one matchup. I mean, you would think on the outset, we got Mike Cuellar and Tom Seaver, 
both of whom ended up winning Cy Young this year, those are going to be the guys who come up big. Hmm. One of them does. One of them doesn't. But uh, we're going to get more into that after a word from our sponsor. It's been that kind of a week. The boss is demanding. The heat, unbearable. The AC, on the fritz. Then there's the subway ride home. Sometimes a fella just needs a cool, frosty lift. But the bar at Kelsey's is five deep. Then you remember. I've got a case of Schaefer's in the icebox. Just waiting for me at home. Will you use that thing you used to pop open a couple of holes in the top of the can? That's it. Then pour yourself a tall glass of the pale yellow liquid gold with the frothiest froth. You sip through all that foam and you pop up in another and another and a few more. You've earned it, fella. Why stop at one or two or even six? It's going to taste as good from number seven through number 15. It's cheap, it's smooth, and it's cheap. And best of all, it's right there in your icebox. Schaefer is the one beer to have when you've got to get totally smashed. So if you're aware of the outcome of this series, the fact that I'm going to be talking quite about the Baltimore Orioles in this episode might not come as a surprise um, given what happens in game one actually ending up being the high point for them. Uh, But there's two players I really want to focus on here who, who ended up being the stars of this game. And that's going to be Mike Cuellar and Don Buford. Now, both of these guys are pretty interesting, very different backgrounds. Mike Cuellar, of course, from Cuba, Don Buford from Texas, but both of them are similar in the fact that it took them a while to reach the big leagues. They weren't established major major leaguers until their late 20s, and both of them reached 30 years old at kind of a, you know, an inflection point of where they were going to go. And both of them around that age also ended up being traded to the Orioles. The Orioles saw something in them. Maybe the teams they were with didn't. And so that's what I want to kind of focus on is the background between these two guys. We're going to get into what they do in these games, but I wanted to give you a bit of background into Mike Cuellar and Don Buford. So first of all, the starting pitcher of this game, Mike Cuellar, born Miguel Angel Cuellar Santana, born in Las Villas, Cuba, back in the 30s. During, you know, he grew, he, his family worked in sugar mills. You know, very, very agricultural background, small area, but he wished for something different. And actually, interestingly enough, he joined the military. He joined he joined Batista's military. This is back when uh, when Batista was the dictator of Cuba. He joined the military, and part of the thing was that he knew he could play baseball on the weekends. He would he would he would get paid. And he could play baseball on the weekends. He had actually ended up being on 
sort of the army team, the, the Cuban national team competing in different events. In fact, like threw a no hitter in a game. And so he caught the eye of a lot of American scouts, Cuban scouts, other international scouts, so that when he was discharged from the military, you know, he caught on with Nick in Nicaragua in different countries. He got a chance to play baseball because they saw, hey, here's this lefty with a good curveball. He he can really he he's gonna be able to do something. And so he was signed in 1957 by the Cincinnati Reds. The Cincinnati Reds took a chance on him. Um, and then part of the reason that the Reds signed him was their affiliate was the Cuban Sugar Kings in, in Havana, the Havana Sugar Kings. That was back when the International League was actually international. No longer, I mean, now it's all Amer- it's uh, all American teams. But back then, you know, you had teams up in Canada and you had teams even in Cuba. And so Mike Cuellar, who's Cuban, doesn't need to, you know, travel back and forth. I mean, obviously the teams traveled back and forth. Travel to Cuba was a lot of, was a lot easier back in those days before uh, before Castro took over. And so here's Mike Cuellar. He gets a chance, and you know, early on he's dominating. He's doing great, ha- having great success. You know getting a chance both to relieve and to start. They did that a lot with young pitchers back then. And so he's doing great in the International League. Uh, there's, an, in fact, a, a classic story of right as tensions were building and and there, and there the Batista government was overthrown, there was actually like they called the Junior World Series. So the American Association champion and the International League Association champion would face each other. So it was the Minneapolis Millers, so this is actually before the senators even moved to Minneapolis to become the twins. And so there's this great seven game series and gate those games happening in Havana and there's soldiers in the dugout is there's a, I, I implore you to go, go look up that series. Uh, and, and Cuellar, he didn't perform the best, but you know, he had a chance to, you know, pitching at home in Cuba in a huge event. Um, Unfortunately for Mike Cuellar, you know, he got a chance to, to reach the big leagues in 1959, but he got shelled. A couple of relief appearances got lit up. But he didn't see the majors again for five more years. He, he you know, he bounced around the upper minors, bounced around with different teams. You know, never pitching badly, but never really shining. And 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 perhaps he didn't get a chance. There were some inconsistencies. Um, but his big break actually occurred before the 1964 season. So he ended up being in uh, in the St. Louis organization. I believe there's a guy named Ruben uh, Gomez or something like that who taught him a screwball. And that was really the difference of that's what made – that's what allowed Mike Cuellar to blossom. He had a great year in AAA – in the international league posted a sub two ERA and finally got the chance to make the big leagues again after so many years. So he, he latched on with the Cardinals. He was actually traded pretty shortly. Then thereafter the Houston Astros picked him up and he was then in the majors from then on. He bounced, he bounced back and forth, but he really then established himself. In fact, making an all-star game in 1967, you know, he had uh, his, his his first year, 1965, uh, with the Astros. You know, 
was a reliever, appeared appeared in 25 games, mid threes ERA, but then it was the following year, he went 12 and 10 with a 2 2 ERA. Then the next year 16 and 11 with a 303. The following year his his winning percentage dropped only going to 8 and 11, but he posted a 274 ERA. He was really establishing himself as a as well, I would say a stud, but I mean maybe that's going a little too far, but hey, this was a lefty you could count on. The issue though, of course, is the fact that this was his age 30 season, first time being an all-star, first time really be, being given a chance to even pitch really uh, at the big league level. Um, but, you know, it, it, his combination of the screwball and the curveball was outstanding. It really messed with hitters. And I mean, he's definitely what we would call a crafty lefty uh, nowadays. And so there was heading into 1969. I mean, he had, again, back then your record as a pitcher was kind of what determined everything, you know, whether you had a winning record or a losing record. So coming off of an eight and 11 season, despite having a great ERA, his innings totals were not great mainly because I think he dealt with an injury or something in 1968, or there was something else going on, but Earl Weaver and the Orioles, they saw something in them. And in fact, they traded one of their starting outfielders. So Kurt Blaferi, that's, believe you me, that's a hard name. (laughs) That's a hard name to pronounce. But they traded him and, and a package of other guys. But the main thing was to get Mike Cuellar. Uh, Give me one second. I'm going to check to see who else was involved in that trade. Yeah, no, I mean, there's not really, there's a couple of other minor leaguers. It was really, it was Blaferi for, uh, Blaferi for Cuellar. And Blaferi had been on the 1966 World Series team, was a, you know, solid outfielder, good hitter. But, you know, the Orioles, who already had outstanding pitching, felt they needed a bit more. And boy, did that work out for them getting Mike Cuellar his first, so his first year, and this is on a stretch for, you know, the next, uh, the next six or so seasons where he was just became arguably the best uh, left-hander in the American league. One of the best left-handed pitchers in baseball uh, for, for a stretch, for a stretch of time where he was just absolutely fantastic. So he brings in this first year where he goes 23 and 11, a two, three, Eight ERA, two hundred ninety innings is the ends up being the co Cy Young with Denny McLean, a guy who had won thirty games the year before. And then I'll, I'll briefly say the next couple of years won twenty four games in 1970, 20 games in nineteen seventy one, eighteen, eighteen, and then twenty two in nineteen seventy four, all with very good ERAs. Mike Cuellar was outstanding. I mean, what a trade. That's one one of the best trades you could ever make. You have a guy who impacts you and is then, you know, a key cog on a team that went to three straight World Series. And it wasn't it wasn't expected necessarily. Here's a guy who had to toil through the minors, had to toil through life. And you know, finally got his opportunity after so much time bouncing around. It's really outstanding. 
Um, one more final note um, before I talk about Don Buford, about Mike Cuellar, and I'll talk more about Cuellar as we get into the game. But his nickname was Crazy Horse. Now, part of that is because he was known as potentially one of the most superstitious players. Like, he was very, very um, picky about things. And as a baseball player, I get it. I think baseball players, they are super, they've got some weird rituals and weird traditions and like weird things of, well, my, my batting gloves got to be this way. And I mean, of course there's the whole thing of making sure you don't step on the line or rolling a ball out. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different things. And I, I, I encourage you to look up uh, stories about make my choir. Some of them are pretty entertaining about things that would happen in games, um, you know, and whether or not it all works, but Hey, you look at his career and what he did with the Orioles. Would you blame him if you had that success and you believe those things? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but being that, that crafty guy, that superstitious guy and, and seemed to really enjoy pitching for the Orioles. Um, I mean, what a pickup. And as it turns out, this is going to be his day you know, starting game one of the World Series. I mean, oftentimes, you know, you make a trade. I mean, the Orioles already had Dave McNally and Jim Palmer who were budding, almost, I would have frankly say, established stars. Uh, Palmer was dealing with some injury issues at the time um, before he really uh, took to dominance later in his career. Um, but man, Mike Cuellar, <laughs> uh, what a pickup. You trade for a guy. And then he's, he wins a Cy Young and is starting game one of the World Series for you. I would say that that works out. That's pretty pretty shrewd, pretty shrewd decision-making there. And so then the with that, talking about shrewd de- decision-making, the other guy we're going to talk about is Don Buford. Don Buford uh, grew up in Texas, small, undersized guy. He was only 5'7". You know, and so that made it, um, although he grew, he, he was born in Texas, he actually moved to Southern California. And so there were all, all, you know, Pacific schools he was going for. He was actually, he was a two, two sports star. Uh, and actually it was mainly, it was more football than baseball. And, uh, he ended up going to USC. Uh, he was a Trojan and was a, a football star, you know, cornerback, running back, kickoff returns, all that stuff, did, you know, did everything on the football field. But he never got looks professionally because he, he was a little guy. He was 5'7". Um, and, you know, ended up ended up uh, tacking on with the White Sox uh, in the minor leagues. And here's another guy who had to fight through the minors, you know, was signed in 1960 but didn't make his major league debut until 1963 and wasn't a regular until 1964. So it wasn't until he was 27 that he ended up being there in the majors. And part of that was with the White Sox. I mean, they, they had him playing in the outfield in the minors, but the idea was that he was going to play infield Um, at second base. He was blocked by Nellie Fox and at third base. Oh, I'm blanking on the guy's name. Give me one second. Sorry, I should be a little more prepared for this. But yeah, no, it, and and it was Pete Ward. So he Pete Ward, that's right. Pete Ward was with the White Sox. And so he was there. So Buford 
you know, didn't come up until he was 27. And part of the thing too is he was a bit older because he went to college. He played four years of college football. Um, and that would I mean, of course, that's a different thing. And this was before the draft, before someone would have, you know, potentially picked him either out of high school and all this. And, you know, he had to go up against being an undersized guy. But one thing that was always consistent throughout his career was he's a guy who was good with the bat, knew how to get on base. There were defensive questions. He he struggled defensively in the infield, that was for sure. And, you know, although he had speed and certainly stole a lot of bases early in his career, he wasn't efficient. And, and, and this was actually, this is a whole thing of when he eventually gets traded to the Orioles with the analytically-minded Earl Weaver, he kind of told him, yeah, no, you're going to get on base. You're going to lead off for us, which was, and you're going to play outfield. But I don't want you stealing bases anymore. I don't care that you're fast. You're not, you're not that good at it. Uh, I want you to be good at what you do. I mean, that was something that Earl Weaver strongly believed in. Of He didn't want guys doing things that wasn't their game. He was very much about, hey, here's how you're going to succeed. I'm going to put you in a position to succeed. And again, it's the type of thing of when the Orioles traded for Don Buford from the White Sox, interestingly enough, I'm now thinking Don Buford was sharing a team with Tommy Agee, both guys who had initial success with the White Sox. In fact, you know, in 1965, Don Buford got an MVP vote. He, he had a, He had a very solid year, but he seen, you know, he was one of those guys who was getting around 30, looked like he was trending in the wrong direction, a guy who wasn't a great defender and was not excelling at hitting. And so, and actually at the time it looked like, oh, well, his skill is he steals a lot of bases. But he goes to the Orioles and just immediately makes a tremendous impact. 1968, he hits 282, 367, 437, 15 home runs, finishes 15th in MVP, you know, and then 1969 is tremendous. 291, 397 on base percentage. Power went down a little bit, but he set the tone. I mean, that was the thing is Earl Weaver, who actually took over from as manager in 1968, was Don Buford, you're going to lead off, you're going to hit for us, and you're going to set the tone. And as we'll get into, Don Buford set the tone for the series. And, I mean, there's there's not many better ways to start off your World Series career than with something like this. And there's the winningest pitcher in the Major League this year, 24-year-old Tom Seaver, who won 25 and lost 7. Lives in Manhattan Beach, California, born in Fresno. Slider uses sort of a rolling curve as a changeup. A high 
drive into deep right. Wobota backing up, drawing a B right in front of the wall and can't get it. Buford leads off with a home run. We just had, uh, this is Fabota. He thought he had enough room, and actually he did have enough room. The height of that fence right there, just to the right of the uh, Mets bullpen, is seven feet high. The glove will go over the fence. He went up about nine feet with the glove, and he couldn't get to it. Like I said, what a way to begin a World Series. You know, right after uh, Mike Cuellar has a solid start. Um, he did give up a single to Cleon Jones in the first inning. But relatively smooth, top of the first. Here you are going up against Tom Seaver, one of, you know, a guy who went to your college, obviously at a, at a later date. But Don Buford leading off the World Series with a home run. I mean, what a moment. What a moment for Don Buford. Um, if you had a chance to watch a replay or watch a video, kind of looks like, Ron, Ron Swoboda. I'm sorry, that's a tough name to say, Ron Swoboda. Uh, it looks like he had a beat on the ball, but just not enough room. Um, I mean, he was kind of camped under it, but Buford, well, I don't know whether it was the wind, whether or not he put enough backspin on it, but it gets out. And so, you know, that's kind of a blow to uh, a guy like Tom Seaver, who's, oh, here I am. I'm I'm the hot basically, you know, and we're gonna I'm gonna get into Tom Seaver quite a bit uh when we cover game four. Um and because I could talk about Tom Seaver forever. I mean, when I when I think about some of my favorite players and in terms of numbers that I've worn, I mean there's Henry Aaron, 44. And if 44 is not available, I'm gonna go 41 because of Tom Seaver, the franchise, Tom Terrific. That his motion, I mean, the the dragging his back leg down uh, and one of my favorite books that I had as a kid. And, and I'm going to go into more depth on this uh, when, when we cover game four. Uh, but was Tom Seaver's The Art of Pitching. Absolutely love and adore Tom Seaver. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, he passed uh, recently. Um, and unfortunately, we heard that he had dementia. The last few years of his life were pretty rough. Um, but during that time, right, Tom Seaver won Rookie of the Year in 1967, was an established star, and had a tremendous year, led the league in wins, and he comes at you with the fastball. He, he can't, I mean, he was certainly, Tom Seaver was a modern pitcher um, in terms of hard fastball, hard slider, coming right at guys. Buford wasn't intimidated. And I think that was the thing that's important to recognize in this series. You know, as I discussed earlier, the Orioles do everything right. They pitch, they hit, and they field. They don't, for the most part, make mistakes. They're a, they're a complete team. And Buford was there to set the tone. Bam, we're coming right up after this guy. We're not scared of you. Right after Mike Cuellar sets the tone in, at, at the top of the inning. 
Don Buford is saying, here we are. We're ready to face you. Um, Seaver would settle down, though. Gets through the rest of the inning. He gave up a single to Boog Powell. But then it turns over, and Cuellar, he's just unfazed. Nothing, Nothing's going to get to him. He's, he struggled a bit with control in this game. Uh, he he did have a walk uh, later in this game. You know, if we go if we go for the play by play, um, he gave up a walk in the in the in the top of the third inning. He, Al Weiss of all people, who he's gonna he's gonna come up more, and we're gonna mention him. Uh, but he got you know facing Tom Agee gets a gets a ground ball double play with Belanger and Johnson, one of the best up the middle duos you could ever have. Um, Seaver, on the other hand, you know he he ended up settling down and had a had a had a clean had a clean second inning. Well, he had a clean third inning. Um, there ended up being uh, an error at second base that allowed Don Buford to Don Buford reach on an error, but he settled down. Cuellar, unfazed, top of the fourth, ends up ends up giving up a hit to Don Clendenin. But he's settling in all good. He's ready. One run, Mike Cuellar sticking his head. Don Buford got me all I needed this game. But thankfully for Cuellar, his team decided to give him a little bit more. As I mentioned, Tom Seaver had settled down. Absolutely. He he was getting into his groove. Now in the fourth inning, he gets, you know, facing the middle of the lineup. So he's got Boog Powell and Brooks Robinson. Gets Boog to ground after short. Gets Brooks to hit a pop-up. But then, facing the bottom of the order, well, things get a little things get a little hectic. Gives up a single a single to Ellie Hendricks. Ends up walking Davy Johnson, but it's calming down. It's the bottom of the order. You've got relatively light hitting Mark Belanger up. But I think what what we see here, what we see coming up here, is Seaver's youth getting to him a little bit. And and this is the thing I say in baseball, you never you, you can't predict it. I mean, because sometimes, hey, you're facing the middle of the order, that's gonna be re- really tough. And sometimes you're like, okay, you've got the bottom of the order, you've got this weak hitting shortstop, a pitcher coming up. All right, gonna settle down. Get my get my team back on offense, but the wheels can come off quite quickly. There's a base hit to right. Labota is firing to the plate. The throw is off. The throw to third is not in time. Belanger singles to right. Labota charged that ball. It looked like he had a good play at the plate. But as you saw, his throw was off. Kurt here it is in slow motion. The pitch was outside. Belanger went with the outside pitch right between the second and the first baseman, Weiss to Clendenin. Slobodic tried to come home with the throw, may have hurried the throw, and it was down the third base foul line. And then the throw from the catcher, Grillion to Charles, was also late. Well, the Orioles now have Dave Johnson at third, Belanger at first, give Belanger an RBI. His hitting down there in that number eight spot has been so vital 
for the Orioles all season. The pitcher Mike Cuellar is up. He struck out his first time. The Orioles lead now two to nothing. Runners on first and third, two down. fellow who became the eighth player in World Series history to hit a home run in his first time at bat in the World Series. Mickey Lolich was the last to do it. Ball one. Tom Buford, who homered in the first, reached in an air in the third. The Landers at second, players at first, two away. Four Orioles in a row have reached base. Three to nothing, Baltimore. There's a drive to right field That's into the corner. Coming in to score is Belanger. Cuellar's going to third. And in the second goes Buford with his speed. A double. Oh, how things can change in an instant. Seaver appeared to be taking control of, of this game, getting his team right back in it, cruising through the fourth inning. But just like that, you're down 4 nothing, Game 1 of the World Series going up against one of the best left-handers in baseball. I mean, just what can almost feel like a letdown. It, it, we use this term, the wheels falling off, or just the game going by too fast. I mean, as you listen there, most of the time when I'm going to play clips, it's going to be a one. Pl- it's going to be of one play. That was three hits right in a row. I think in a matter of four pitches. So, man, tough day at the office for Tom Seaver. You're going to wish, he was certainly wishing that things could be better. And as we'll see, he does get another shot in this series. And boy, does he come up big. But what a great, what a great day for Mike Cuellar. I mean, Cuellar, he actually ended up having a home run in the playoffs the following season in the ALCS. And he certainly gave up some homers as a pitcher. But Don Buford coming up big again. Mark Belanger, and I want to touch briefly on Mark Belanger, who now in 1966, Louis Aparicio was the shortstop. And that's, in fact, I, I, I neglected to mention, Louis Aparicio is who Don Buford was traded for. Louis Aparicio, the uh, the Hall of Fame shortstop, great defender, one of the best um, uh, stolen base artists that you that you've ever seen. Um, actually, began his career with the White Sox, came over to the Orioles, won a World Series with them, and then went back to the White Sox, uh, and then was actually with the Red Sox at the very at the very tail end of his career. Um, but that's who, so the Orioles gave up a significant name, significant piece, and you know a great all-time defender, but part of the reason the Orioles felt comfortable trading away Louis Aparicio, well, that's because they had Belanger. I mean, you would think looking at um, uh, Belanger's hitting numbers, and and 
1969 was actually one of his better years. He was an almost league average offensive player. That's not what you get out of Mark Belanger. Uh, he was not a good hitter throughout his career, but man, could he pick it at short. One of the best to ever do it. I mean, at shortstop, Ozzie Smith might be the only one better to do it. I mean, that's saying something. I mean, this guy, this guy was a gold glove machine. Um, and, and it's, it's very interesting. You know, Jim Palmer, uh, mentioned, uh, I think in his hall of fame induction speech, but he wouldn't be a hall of famer if he, if he didn't have Belanger at short Brooks at third and Paul Blair Roman out in center for much of, for much of his career. I mean, talk about, I mean, it was one of the things that Earl Weaver, I mean, that Earl Weaver prided on was, hey, you're going to be out there. You better, you better, you better defend. And that's what the Orioles did. I mentioned earlier how they were far and away the best defensive team. I mean, they were, they were up there with the best offensive team, up there with the best pitching, but defense is where they stood out. And that was true for Earl Weaver is if you're going to be on the field, you better, like you either had to, be one of the best hitters or you had to be one of the best defenders. You had guys who could do both like Paul Blair, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson and Book Powell were no slouches on the defensive side. Um, But that, that was, that's what Earl Weaver believed in. And I mean, I think there was a, there was a joke from Tony La Russa. It's about, it was about Yadier Molina and saying, I don't care if he hits zero, but what he brings defensively, that's why he's there. Sam could pretty much be said about Belanger. There were years where, I mean, he didn't hit much better than a pitcher, but man, could he pick it. And of course, there was another guy who was a lot more famous for defense. I just, I just mentioned him, but that's Brooks Robinson. You know, so obviously in this game, and we're going to come up to a patent, a patented, patented, oh, talk about another hard words apologize for struggling through through some of these here um but brooks robinson just one of the best defenders i mean you know we're going to talk about more players i'm not going to talk as much about brooks um really in this series here too much uh because unfortunately at the plate he did not have a great series um but he came up with some big defensive plays and and then and, and again that's what he's known for one of the best, one of the best defenders of all time. Um, he also had great offensive moments throughout his career. But when we talk about defense, about a guy just being the best at best at their position, I mean, there's talk about now about whether you know Nolan Arenado or Matt Chapman, or you know, for much of his career, Adrian Beltre. You know, there are definitely claims for guys to be best third baseman of all time. It's Mike Schmidt, by the way. Um, but guys who certainly did it on the offensive end and were good defenders, but there's for what he did over the course of his career, there's no one touching Brooks Robinson, no one touching him. I mean, just with the diving plays, the scooping balls up. I mean, just what you had on the left side of the Orioles in infield for, for, you know, almost the better part of two decades, whether you had Louis Aparicio or Belanger at short, and then Brooks at third. I mean, my goodness, made pitching a lot easier. You look at the you look at the pitching numbers the guys had, and it makes a lot of sense when you consider 
ground balls just weren't getting through very often. I mean, man, and and think about if Earl Weaver had the data and and the what we had now, based off of positioning, just how much better those guys would have even been too. Um, man, and what we're going to see coming up here. Um, oh, well, before before I get to the play, which which we're going to hear, just one one last thing on Brooks Robinson. I mean, there's talk about whether or not Brooks or Cal is the significant or like the most important Oriole. And I think it, you know, it comes down to generation. Actually, people my age would probably go Cal because, you know, I grew up right around the time that he broke Lou Gehrig's record. He was one of, I mean, people played in Cal Ripken League. I think for the older generations of people my father's age or a bit older, they would probably lean Brooks. I mean, of course, the you have the 66 World Series, 70 World Series. But what I think about is, so if you're driving into Baltimore, you're driving down Russell's, Russell Street, whether whether you're coming off the BW Parkway, if you're coming off of I-95, I- going, going to Oriole Park at Camden Yards, which, by the way, if you've never been, never seen a game there, I highly recommend it. One of the most beautiful ballparks. I'm a bit biased being being from the area. Um, you know, of course, Brooks never played at Camden Yards. He played at Memorial, which is now torn down. But if you're driving there, going down Russell Street as it turns into Paca Street, there's this little bend right before you get up to Pratt Street. And who's there but that right outside the stadium, there's a statue of Brooks. And it's all... You know, it's it's a uh, it's a gray statue for the most part, or bronze, but the glove's gold because, man, gold glove, Brooks Robinson, it's synonymous with one another. Um, and so we're going to get into this play here of, you know, I mentioned the Orioles took control of this game, and rightly so. You've got Mike Quayer on the mound. They actually knocked Seaver out. Seaver only went five innings. But here in the top of the seventh, things are getting a little dicey. I mentioned Cuellar's command slipped a little bit. He he struggled a bit with walks in this game. And the bottom of the order was getting a bit pesky. You know, they loaded the bases. Uh, Al Weiss ended up with a sack fly to make it a 4-1 game. And then, importantly to mention here is Cuellar walked another guy. Bases are loaded. And uh, you end up actually having a pinch hitter come up. It's going to be Rod Gaspar uh, pinching for Don Cardwell. And so, I mean, this is a big moment here. Cuellar needs to settle down. He needs to settle in. Um, Weaver started getting the bullpen ready. But man, and so here's what you have is a ball, tough play. I mean, one, one of... It's a tough play, the slow roller to third base. But in some eyes, when you think about players, and this is where Brooks Robinson is just so significant. Well, just take a listen here. Boy, I'm trying to tighten the belt buckle here and uh, get out this net fire here in the top of the seventh inning. Jasper batting for Cardwell. Seaver started the game and won five innings. 
tough play for Brooks Robinson at third base. Extremely tough. Robinson putting on a fielding show here. This is the hardest play a third baseman has to make. Charging the ball, picking it up barehanded, and snapping the throw all in the same motion. And look at this throw right on target with something on it. Robinson's made the two best fielding plays of the game so far. And in the middle of the seventh inning, the score is Baltimore four and New York one. Man, what a play. By Brooks. I mean, if you get a chance to watch the video, it's one of those slow roller, bare hand, whipping across the diamond. One of my favorite plays to witness. Um, Brooks, absolutely fantastic on it. I mean, I try to think of other guys I've seen who can just come in with that bare hand of, I think about, again, this is being biased here, being from the uh, Baltimore, Washington area. We got to see Ryan Zimmerman do that before his shoulder broke down. I mean, he was one of the best at coming in, making that bare hand grab and just whipping it across the diamond. Anthony Rendon was fantastic. We see Arenado and Matt Chapman make those make those plays in their sleep. Beltre was great at it. I mean, it's just one of those, again, because it's one of those plays that you got to come in, you got to be aggressive, you got to make that decision whether you're going to glove it or go with bare hand and make that sort of throw off of one foot, man. And, and had a big play there. I mean, you've got, you got bases loaded. The, the game was about to get out of hand. I mean, the, the Mets Quare almost lets the Mets uh, back into it. And, you know, nothing really happens in the eighth inning uh, too much. Um, You know, so it's, again, it's still, Still a four-run, a four-to-one lead. Um, Mets bullpen did a fantastic job. They shut they 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 shut the Orioles down. They they kept their team in it with a with a chance. And so, top of the ninth, we've got Mike Cuellar gives up an infield single to Ron Swoboda, gets Ed Charles to fly out, actually strikes out Jerry Grody, and now. Al White, but then, as I mentioned, while this was a fantastic game from Cuellar, he did have four walks. He gives up his fourth walk. And to Al Weiss, of all people, we're going to we're gonna talk about Al Weiss in this series. You know, a guy who, and, and this was an important thing, I, I mentioned this earlier, but one of the things, you know, Earl Weaver had his lineup. The only switch was... Echebarren or Ellie Hendricks. So if it was a righty on the mound, the lefty hitting Ellie Hendricks was going to be in there. What, you know, so then if you had a lefty, so like, as we'll see with Jerry Kuzman, then it was going to be Andy Echebarren. But that was the only switch he made. He had his lineup. He had his guys. So, and he didn't change it. And it worked all year. He had guys, he had guys to pinch hit. He occasionally would play around with platoons and obviously with health, but that was his lineup. Hodges, on the other hand, he he very much played platoons. And so with the lefty Cuellar on the mound, and we'll see in lefty game two with Dave McNally, he went with guys like Al Weiss, Don Clendenin, 
and Ron Swoboda. Whereas in the NLCS, guys, as we're going to see who's coming up to the play here, Art Shamsky, he had a great series. Wayne Garrett had a great series. Ed Cranepool played. He mean, so he he strictly played platoons. I mean, that was what Hodges believed in. Uh, it didn't really matter. I mean, we see now of some guys have platoon splits, but some guys don't. Um, some guys, it's sort of, hey, they're a lefty, but they're going to hit against anybody. Um, it didn't really kind of matter what guys' numbers were. I mean, because overall, guys' numbers, other other than the kind of the top of the Mets order, ugh, the rest of the numbers overall were not were not that great. Um, but Art Shamsky was a guy who actually hit very well throughout uh, throughout the year, but didn't get the start in game one. So here he is coming up, got two runners on, got a chance to make this into something and, you know, perhaps, you know, get Cuellar out of the game because this was, I think, you know, you're going to see there was a meeting on the mound talking to like, Hey, Cuellar, this is probably going to be your last hitter. You know, so get this guy finish off the game for us. Or, I mean, who knows what happens? I mean, you bring in another pitcher. There's just even, even with two outs in the ninth inning and, and down by three runs, it's not a guarantee. I mean, the, the Mets are a pesky team. They just won't go away. But take a listen to see what happens here. Four walks now have been given up by Cuellar. And the pitching coach of the Orioles, George Bamberger, who visited the mound uh, during the seventh inning, coming out again. The Orioles are continuing uh, continuing to warm. Rickert, the left-hander, and Watt, the right-hander. That's Watt to the left and Rickert to the uh, to the right. Bamberger still with Cuellar. This is when they want that honest answer. Are you tired? We also checked with a catcher. And we're satisfied, I guess. We are all ready for Art Shamsky, who is the hottest hitter for the Mets during their playoff series with Atlanta. But Gil Hodges, who's utilized his platoon system very successfully, took his left-handers out and put his right-handed hitting lineup in. But Shamsky was red hot against Atlanta. He was indeed, Kurt. He had uh, seven base hits. 13 times to the plate, so that's better than 500. Two on for the Mets, and two out in the top of the ninth. Pulled by the breaking ball with a golf swing. Shamsky likes to pull. And as a matter of fact, in the Oriole outfield, Blair extremely shaded to right center. Second baseman Johnson goes to first, and that's the ball game. Champsky, batting for the pitcher, has grounded out to end game one of the World Series. Baltimore has been victorious by a score of four to one. Cuellar had a shaky seventh, a shaky ninth, but pulled out of both jams. So there it is. Cuellar finishes the job, closes the game out, doesn't need a reliever, a tremendous and and frankly a masterful performance. I mean, there were a couple of shaky moments there in the seventh and there in the ninth, but when you really look at it, he had the control of the entire game. <clears throat> and part of that too is when you're staked to a big lead. I mean, Buford Buford gets him the lead early on. Cuellar took control. And also contributed to his own cause, getting a hit off of Tom Seaver. 
pitcher hits are going to be kind of the thing in this series. We'll 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 continue on that theme as as we go on. But I mean, that's a tone that's setting the tone. And and I mean, when we when we talk about series, I mean, obviously the Orioles had home field advantage. They were a hundred and nine win team, dominant throughout the year. Had close games against the Twins in the ALCS games one and two, but just absolutely took control in game three. They were deep. And, you know, they did what was expected of them here. They they were expected to win the series. They were expected to win game one. The Mets were looking to try to steal one. Yeah, it didn't happen. Didn't work out. Seaver didn't have a great game. He didn't he didn't like you expected him to come out. Maybe this was going to be a one nothing pitcher's duel. Didn't end up being that way. Cuellar did his part. Seaver and the Mets, you know, while while they fought, certainly, they didn't really have much of a shot in this game. Um, and we'll hear briefly here, uh, and I'll, I'll talk to you before we go. Um, I'll talk to you after the – I'm going to play two clips of uh, – you know, Tony Kubek asking some questions to Mike Cuellar and uh, Don Buford right after the game. I mean, even back then, they would do the interviewing someone right after, right after the game. But but you really see how master, a um, really masterful performance um, from Mike Cuellar. He credits the screwball. He credits the pace, um, and you know, credits his defense. I mean, again. Brooks Robinson coming up huge with a great defensive play, the offense being timely, and just them doing enough to win. But was that going to hold over the rest of the series? Well, you're just going to have to tune in to find out. But take a quick listen uh, to these interviews, and I'll be right back. Going down to meet the winning pitcher now, Mike Cuellar, and the hitting star for today's game, Don Buford with Tony Kubek. Thank you very much. Down here with me, Mike Quayer. And Mike, congratulations. That was a pretty fine ball game. Thank you very much, Tony. What was the best pitch for you today? I got it at the screwball in the best one today. You know, I feel pretty good at the first fight in it with a first ball. But after that, I got a pretty good screwball. Well, what about this Mets lineup now? What is your impression of the Mets lineup? What about AG? What about Swoboda? What about some of the other hitters? Well, no, I, I tell you, all the Mets, you know, the, from the first one to the sixth, to the sixth hitter, you gotta be careful with us, you know. You can, you can hit the ball out of the park anytime, you know. You can make no mistake. With us. You gotta put a good ball club. Mike, there's some managers that are saying, and baseball people saying that they ought to bat left-handed hitters against you to take away that screwball. Does it bother you whether it's a left-handed hitter or a right-handed hitter up there? Well, it ain't no bother me, you know, because I try to pitch it the same. Order. So left-handed to right-handed, I use the screwball to the left-handed too, you know. Then no bother me, really no bother me. Mike, let's go back to just before the ball game. What kind of feelings did you have? You'd never seen the Met Ball Club before. Were you nervous? Were you on edge? You didn't have time to warm up, I know, for a while because the uh, vice president's, uh, the president's wife, Pat Nixon, came in on the party and they kind of delayed your warmest. Did this affect you at all at the start of the ball game? Well, it affected me a little bit because I know warming out, like you say, I know warming out good. I take about five minutes off, you know, because there's all the people, so I didn't mind, they can let me warm it up. But anyway, you know, the, I don't feel not, little nervous, you know, little nervous, but it's not, it's nothing like that. Mike, you had a fine ball game, and it must be quite comforting. You must feel pretty good out there when you're on the mound, when you can look behind you and see Brooks Robinson at third, Belanger at short, and some of the other players in the end of it, Davey Johnson, of course, Boog Powell. 
Brooks made a heck of a play down on third base. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's the best third base I've seen in my life, you know. That, that guy can really do everything. You know, he gets to the line, to, up to the hole, everything. Marble Angels, you know. And they young some bull power, too. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, everybody thinks you know, it's a good golf at that, too. Mike Quare, thank you so much. Congratulations once again. We're looking forward to seeing you up in New York. Okay, thank you very much. John Buford invited his old college coach, Bob Dadu of USC, as his guest here at the World Series. And Tony, uh, Don showed his old college coach how to do it today. Certainly did. And Don, you know, uh, that's quite a start. First time at bat in the World Series, did a home run. Three for four day, quite a day. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Tony. Uh, what about Tom Seaver? What about batting off him that you'd never seen him before? Well, um, no, I, he went to the same university I did, University of Southern California, and I saw him one winner. I think I just hit against him once. But I knew he threw hard, and uh, I had to look for the hard stuff all day, no matter what he threw. And all the reports that, he, that we had is he threw hard, and uh, I felt that if he threw hard, that's all I could look for. What about tomorrow and Jerry Kuzman, the left-hander? Have you ever seen him before? Uh, no, I haven't. Tony and I really, I understand he threw curveballs and fastballs just like Seaver, and I just uh, hope we get off to another good start. Don, your impressions of the Mets ball club? Of course, it's a team comprised of young players, inexperienced. They just don't give up. We've seen them in the playoffs again in Atlanta. What about your impressions of this Mets ball club? Well, Tony, I don't think they're the type of club that gives up. The only thing is, I think uh, we got off to a good start and then scored a two or three runs right there together, and I think they may have had a little letdown, but you can't say they're going to let down tomorrow. If they uh, get off to a pretty good start, they're going to be a tough ball club. Don Buford, congratulations once again. Have a good series. Thank Have you. a good day tomorrow. Thank you. So that's going to finish us up here for game one again. A 4-1 win for the Orioles. Mike Cuellar, dominant, masterful performance. Bit of a letdown from Tom Seaver. Don Buford, with the leadoff home run, and then really with you know that double in the in the bottom of the fourth, that three run bottom of the fourth is really what kind of put the game away. Um, allowed Quayar and allowed Earl Weaver, you know, the flexibility to stick with his guy and feel comfortable in those kind of tough situations. Although he had the bullpen warming, he was ready. Quayar came up big. So game two, that's what we're going to go into next. We've got a matchup between lefties, matchup between Dave McNally, a 20-game winner, great pitcher, had a fantastic performance in the 1966 World Series and was looking looking to be masterful again. And young Jerry Kuzman in his second year, an absolute developing into an absolute stud for the Mets. Were things going to change? Who's going to take control? I mean, this, again, teams that go up 2-0 in a series, and especially teams that have home field advantage, that's that's a pivotal game. Game two is always pivotal. So I hope you catch us next time, and you'll tune in uh, to game two of the World Series between the Mets and the Orioles. I hope you enjoyed the highlights from this one and the, the bit of the background. Uh, it's really fun to do this. It's, it's really great to explore this series, and I uh, hope you'll continue to listen. Catch you next time.